You remember that we started several weeks ago uh, a study of uh, the, uh, the fourth chapter of Ephesians. It was interrupted by a lot of different things that intervened during the Christmas season and so on. And other things that uh, came in between. But uh, we've actually, this is going to be the seventh sermon on uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And, uh, you know, one thing that I hope I'll be able to do this week also is to, I'm going to take my notes, unvarnished, unedited, and put it in the website of Lion of Judah um, for all the sermons on Ephesians chapter 4. It's going to be just, it's just one narrative. And um, you'll be able to, I, I encourage you, some of you who might want to do that, and, you know, just look it up, and you can see the whole sweep of the reflection, and uh, you can get a sense of where my spirit has been in terms of uh, this chapter. So, um, you know, by Wednesday, let's say, and Brad is going to help me here just to keep me honest about that, we're going we're gonna to do this. Okay, so you can look it up, and uh, I think there will be a nice commentary there of 28 a uh, Apple pages that uh, you can see, uh, you know, it's not 28, but it's big, bold, uh, big uh, fonts, so it'll be much less than that, but you can get a sense of the whole thing and, uh, you know, what, what I've been talking about. So, um, you know, th this, this idea of unity that I think uh, Ephesians 4 um, specializes in and concentrates on the unity of the church, and uh, my uh, focus on this particular topic of unity of the church has been a bit corrective because um, I think there's a lot of, as you know, false conceptions of what unity is. There's a lot of talk these days about unity, unity of the nation, unity of the church. And a lot of the, the rhetoric that I hear about unity, particularly in the church, is often founded on this idea of muting the specifics and going to the lowest common denominator and uh, finding a way to unite around what some people say is the sort of the foundations, just the basic stuff. Jesus, for example, not uh, taking time to understand what is Jesus, who is Jesus in the Bible. And so um, I've been wanting to, I have a controversy with this uh, false idea of unity, which is destructive and which is not the understanding that the Bible has of unity. And so uh, Ephesians chapter 4 gives us a very, I would say, a robust understanding of unity. Unity is specific. Unity is founded on doctrinal agreement. The, the, the church of the first century has some amazing controversies um, over unity. The, 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 the first century plus of the church was around uh, controversies surrounding doctrine, the Trinity, uh, for example, the nature of Jesus, who he was. Was he human? Was he divine? Was he a mixture? Was he just a kind of a projection, a hologram, a hologram of, uh, of God? Or was he real? Was he flesh and blood? On and on and on. All kinds of controversies. The inspiration of the Bible, the meaning of certain words in the Bible, and so on. Things that to us today would seem like obsessive, compulsive, you know, legalistic. But the church of that century knew that depending on the foundations, the doctrinal foundations and the specifics of, uh, of the foundations would determine how the church expanded. And so they took time to talk about doctrine 
You know, and today, many times when, the, when people in the church and pastors speak about doctrine, there are others in the church who say, oh, come on, that's, that's not where it's at. I mean, you know, why not rally around Jesus? Why not rally around love and grace and acceptance and, and you know, all this stuff? And there's a whole bunch of churches out there. May the Lord bless them. They're doing good work in some ways. But I think there's misinformation being given as well. And so you have a lot of people going to church to be affirmed, to be told that God loves them, to, to just dwell on the grace of God and the goodness of God and how God is an accepting God. And all of that is true. But when you miss also the other side of God, that holy, uh, demanding, just, just in the way that justice is supposed to be interpreted, not in the way that the culture interprets justice. When you dwell on that side, then these two sides have to be in relationship with each other. They have to be in dialogue with each other. The grace of God and the justice of God. The compassion of God and His holiness. And so church, the church needs to be specific and balanced about that. We cannot get so hyped up about grace <clears throat> and goodness that we forget about judgment and righteousness. The two need to go together. So my understanding of uh, unity has been that. Because there's one side of uh, God's specificity that actually divides instead of unites. And I believe that many times we need to divide before we unite. Jesus, how many know that Jesus was a divider? He wasn't just a unifier. You know, we have this uh, lame idea of this Jesus who is just about unity and so on and so forth. Jesus said, I have come to put a, a son against his, his uh, uh, father, a mother against her daughter-in-law. Uh, you know, uh, people who love each other normally. Be, why? Because the gospel, when it's accepted, it divides. Truth, when it accepts, it divides. The Bible divides. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a sharp-edged sword that divides even to the depths of the marrow of the bones and the spirit. The, 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 the Word of God, when it is administered properly, divides. It causes discomfort. It, it, uh, it confronts. And then it blesses and brings unity. Uh, but the unity comes after the pain of the division. And I think we want to go directly to the pain uh, at the end, not wanting to go through the pain of the process. Uh, and um, so, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to be insistent on that. And this is why I've taken this uh, time to unpack uh, Ephesians chapter four, uh, chapter four, because it is a, it is a, uh, the quintessential chapter about unity, especially that verse. Uh, you know that we there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What a grandiose uh, understanding of uh, the kingdom. But there are moments here in this chapter four. When you interpret it correctly, where there's a call to definition, specificity, that divides those who don't agree with that or don't practice what it says and those who want to engage in the effort to redeem that and to uh, apply it. So again, this is the insistent message. This is the unifying element that goes through all of these reflections. Faith is specific. Unity is robust. Unity requires faithfulness to the original vision. And so um, let me go quickly because, again, you know, you, you could just 
the introduction itself, I've, I've said it many times, but I've been repetitive because I want the message to stick. There's so much material here. But let's, let's go to verse 17 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. 4.17. The apostle Paul says, So I tell you this, again, that so is as a consequence of the preceding, as a consequence of all the other things that I've taken time to unpack. So I tell you this and insist on it. Very um, insistent. In the Lord, that you must, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In other words, when we enter into the kingdom of God, we have to say goodbye to the secular way of living. Gentiles is just a word. It was relevant in that time, of the people who don't know God. It's a generic word really now. So you cannot live as the world lives. You have to live now and you have to adopt a different lifestyle. You see, in the, first, uh, in the first 16 verses, Paul waxes eloquent in all kinds of, um, you know, abstract, very spiritual principles about unity and about this God who gives gifts to the church uh, for the edification of the saints and so on and so forth. And now, as he often does, and as the Bible generally does, it goes from the grand to the micro and it goes into the specifics. So he's, he's set up a whole abstract framework, uh, a theological framework, and then he gets into the specifics. So in the light of what I've said before, I tell you this and insist on it, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You remember chapter 12 of Romans as well, where he says, do not be conformed to this world, but uh, let yourself be transformed through the renewing. That is the gradual the gradual replacement of concepts that are dead and false into a in the renewing of your mind. And mind means outlook. Mind means your operational processes, <clears throat> um, the operating principles uh, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. See, that word live means behavior. It means lifestyle. It means daily practices. It refers to relationships. It refers to your work life. It, refer, it refers to your professional life and your business practices. It refers to your sexual habits. It refers to the way you treat your wife or your husband, the way you treat your children, the way you think, the way you speak, live. And that's what it's all about. It is life. And that's really what makes the Christian life so agonizing. Because um, holiness is not just some sort of lovely concept. It is painful. It is confrontative. It cuts through you in every way. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. How do they live? In the futility of their thinking. Again, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about mentality, about mind, about outlook, about, uh, you know, uh, principles. The way you see the world, the way you process the world. That thinking is about just the way you see Life and it's the futility. Why? Because any kind of thinking system that is not founded on the truth of God's principles, on the structure of the universe, because the universe is built on specific laws, both in the spiritual level and in the physical level. We know about the physical level. There are all kinds of things that science reminds us of that operate in the physical world, but it's also in the spiritual world. And any system of thinking, no matter how sophisticated it might be, that is not founded on the real functioning of the spiritual world is futile. It is vain. It is uh, uh, destined to fail. 
And we must live in that confidence. You know what prevents us from going where the world is going? <clears throat> right now, there's huge amounts of rhetoric being thrown at us, inviting us to abandon the truth of God. Think about the serpent back in Genesis saying to Adam and Eve, hey, you, you, do you see what this guy said about, you know, not eating of that tree of the science of knowledge? And evil? Because it's all been about science and about knowledge and about reason and about logic. Don't believe him. He's just a grouch who doesn't want you to get to the same level of knowledge and understanding that you can get to. So he's preventing you from having access to that good stuff of knowledge. Because the serpent will always provide us with other alternative ways of processing the world. And they are intoxicating. They are extremely sophisticated. They are awesome. And if we allow ourselves just to be uh, awed by um, the, the beauty of human reasoning, we will fall there. This is a dangerous time for the church. It's a dangerous time for believers because you go into the internet and you go to all of these incredible resources in the secular world and uh, it, is, it will be the serpent in all kinds of beautiful harmonies telling you, abandon the, the, the good, wholesome, maybe not as attractive or exotic food of the spirit and of the kingdom and um, enter into these delightful concoctions that we can give you. The, 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 the supply of the world can be extremely delightful to the mind, but it is not founded on truth. Anyway, let me not get to, I've already touched upon this, but you know, they live in the futility of the thinking, and their thinking will be, by the way, it will be, it is destined to fail. There's another passage in the Bible that speaks about that men who come up with all kinds of doctrines, sisters, but they will fail as others before them have also failed. You know, and, and, and we, in this time, the Lord is saying to us, people of God, don't let yourself be um, intimidated by the fact that at this moment, those who are destined to ultimately fail seem to have the upper hand. Stay tethered to the long-term processes that govern human existence. Because in the end, those systems will fail. They will crash against the rocks of falsehood and false assumptions. And we have seen this throughout the sweep of human history and culture. There have, been more, there have been worse moments than the one that the church is living now, right now. Many, much worse. And if you don't read history, then you will be somehow intimidated by this minuscule point in the human journey. And you might be tempted to go in that direction. Don't do that. Stay tethered to the word. Stay tethered to the truth. Because those systems that are predicated on a false understanding of human reality and of the spiritual realm are destined to crash. Sooner or later. They have crashed before and they will crash again. It just takes time. And unfortunately, we only have 70, 80 years to live. And we think that that's an eternity. It isn't. The futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. It's beautiful, heavy stuff. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. Here we are introduced into a new idea. Which is that when, when the mind abandons itself or, or untethers itself, breaks away from the connection to the spirit, which renews the life of God in us. When, you, when your mind becomes separated from the life of God, at that very moment, all of a sudden, the life source stops moving within you. And you are then prey to all kinds of uh, passions, demonic infestations, uh, 
temptations and also uh, a different kind of seductive process that, that is demonic and that leads you further and further away and that enters you into uh, then the carnality and, and, and all, all of a sudden all, you, you, are, you are possessed by your passions. You don't have the, the protection of the Spirit of God anymore. And I tell you, if we, are, if we allow ourselves to just go the way of our neurology, we are dead in the water, man. We'll become addicts. Addicts to all the, the passions, the fears, the, the distortions of life, and uh, we will lose it. We will be without mooring. We will be without points of reference. That's why we need the protection of the Word of God. We're frail children. And, you know, this idea of uh, sensuality is so encompassing. It's a lot. It's, it's the life of the flesh in every way. Because I think, for example, the delight of the intellect is a kind of sensuality. You know, when we enter into a nice, juicy book, we are delighting in the feelings of, of uh, the mind life. And it, when, when, a, when a philanthropist delights in having the power to give money and to affect human systems, like, a, you know, um, one of these great philanthropists, you know what power they have to control and to affect and there's a juiciness about that. There, there's a feeling of delight about that. There's a, a flattering of the ego when people uh, see. Who's the, the guy, Microsoft? Bill, Bill Gates. You know, man, what power and what prestige. There's sensuality there. Believe me, when you walk around and people say, ah, there goes so-and-so. There's sensuality there. Anything that tethers us to this time and space now is sensuality. And, uh, you know, when you give yourself over to all of that, then you end up indulging in every kind of impurity and, full of, and, and you become full of greed. Uh, read at some point Romans chapter 1 and you'll see about what happens. Sooner or later, you know, no matter how sophisticated a, s a cultural system is, when it abandons itself from God and the safety of God's word, it ends up in the very opposite, which is just pure, sheer carnality that dishonors the body, dishonors the mind. It's filth because it's a humiliating element. When you, when you don't humble yourself before the God who created you, you become worse than an animal because the only thing that keeps you sublime and angelic is the, the Spirit of God that is in you. If you abandon the Spirit of God, you become what you, you, you're abandoned to your true self. We are all animal. Unless the Spirit of God in us keeps us safe. And that's why we need to be very humble and desperately dependent on the grace of God. Cultivate a sense of frailty. Delight in telling yourself, I am frail. I am broken. I am sin prone. And only by the grace of God. You know, weep before the Lord. Cultivate this sense of your own brokenness, because in that, there will be cracks through which the grace of God can seep and keep you strong. So, very important, because otherwise you end up in the futility of the thinking of the secular man who lives only by the coordinates of uh, his intellect, and that is absolutely horrible when you do that. Anyway, the point is that you end up in the opposite, but here's then uh, an important caveat, verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. In other words, again, here you go. Uh, as believers, this is not what you have been taught. And that's why the church needs to teach what is the proper way of living to the people. 
and not mute that down in the hope of attracting others from the outside world. No. When people come into the church, they have to bow before the dictates of God's righteousness and justice. The church does not adjust its coordinates so that people will come in. You know, Jesus said, narrow is the way. Low is the door. Nobody enters into the kingdom unless they have to go through this low door and they have to go, they have to bow. But the church is into this thing of, no, heighten the door so that more people can come in. Widen the doors. Jesus says, no, there's a narrow way of God's dictates. And that's not, that's not up to us to change. If they want to come, let them come through this door. And we as pastors, we have to put on hold our desire to see people. We want to see the house of God full. We want to see, there's a lot of thing about church growth. I, I, that word really doesn't, that term doesn't apply. I don't think it's, a, you know, about growing churches or even planting churches. It's about growing the kingdom. And you have to grow the kingdom according to its definition. So, uh, you know, it, it, that's why over and over again, in this passage about unity of the body and, and so on, he gets into the nitty-gritty. That, however, is not the way of life. The way of life, the way of life, you learned. The church has to teach the way of life. And it cuts all of us, the, the preacher and the, the congregation. There's a way of life, a way of living, a way of thinking that God has uh, prescribed. When you heard about Christ, see? Christ. Who is Christ? When you heard about Christ, who is Christ? Christ is his principles. Christ is his commandments. Christ is the example that we see displayed in the Gospels. Christ is the teachings of the apostles who develop who Christ is. Don't tell me uh, about just give me Christ. No. Flesh that out. When you learned about Christ, you learned about a whole life, a way of life, a way of living. When you were taught in Him, in Him, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Do you see that? Jesus is not some sort of hologram. He's not some sort of uh, vessel that you can fit anything in. Jesus is a very specific entity. And you have to find out who he is. That's why reading the Bible is a good thing, because then you can see him portrayed. You can see him fleshed out, and the Spirit can enter into you and guide your way of living. In accordance with the truth that is in Jesus... To me, that's one of the most revealing parts of this whole chapter. Our task is to learn what is the truth that constitutes Jesus. And the task of the church is to teach the truth that is in Jesus. And he develops further in verse 22. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, he's developing now, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new to the attitude of your minds. In the attitude of your minds. See again, renewal, replacing you got to take this old structure full of rot, and you got to take beams out and put new beams. you got to take foundations and point them and strengthen them. you got to take the roof and tear it apart and put a new roof on. All of these things in your mind, when you are in the secular world and you come into the kingdom, there's all kinds of rot inside of you. All of us. Still, I'm still, I'm, I've been decades in the kingdom and teaching, and I still have huge amounts of stuff that I need to replace inside of me. It's a renewal process, perpetual, requiring great honesty about yourself and about who you are and your true condition. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Wow, I mean, that's a huge amount of stuff there. To put off your old self. And life in the, in, the, in the kingdom is about a continual struggle 
to divest yourself of the old self and replace it with the new man, the new woman, that is Christ. For Christ to be uh, incarnated in you. To put up the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, it's a war. You make a little bit of progress, you fall back a little bit. You make more progress, fall back a little bit. It's a continual, it's a zigzagging. I wish it were different. I wish it were different. But life in the kingdom is perpetual warfare. Why is, the, why is the Christian always compared to a warrior? Why are there so many images of war? We don't like it in this false, you know, uh, understanding of peace that we have in our time in the church. But it is a war. These deceitful desires that we war against every day. The Apostle Paul says, you know, I, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I want not to do, I end up doing that. Who would deliver me in despair? Just say, God, deliver me from this body of death. You know, we're always fighting against uh, these, these impulses. To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds. How many images of renewal are there in this passage? Many people want to come into the kingdom, but they don't want to engage in the painful process of renewal. And that's why the church is always tempted to lower its demands, lower it, lower it, lower. Because we have a very vocal constituency, more able than ever in the 21st century to make its wants known and felt on pastors and on leaders and teachers of the church. They're like very adept adolescents wearing us down with their insistence and their continual probing to see how they can break the boundaries. That's what people who come into the kingdom are. And, they, and oh, oh, woe to the pastors who don't engage in resistance to just give what people need, not what they want, and to hold back their own tendencies to, to uh, want to just let go and say, okay, I'll go along with it. I won't preach about this or that. And, you know, it's a war, it's a deceitful desires. Uh, and to be made new in the, in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. If you can, during this week, take those verses, verses 20 through 24, study them. Ask the Lord to give you wisdom. Go into some very good orthodox uh, website, uh, you know. Don't go for the crazy stuff. And, and, and do a word study and a, and a, and a study of these, of these about renewing of the mind, renewing of the self, putting up the old self, putting on the new. Anyway, all of this is a, a little bit of a prelude, really, to what happens in verse 25 until the end of the chapter. We just remember what I say, that um, uh, doctrine is specific, that uh, the Christian life is specific, and that it's based on unity of belief. Remember what I've said, that there are churches now in our time that are more like federated republics where you have different groups in the church believing different things and the pastor is some, simply the manager of all this craziness and this unity trying to not rock the boat and not make a certain, certain sector of the church that believes a certain way get angry with the pastor. And really our goal has to be a unification. Now that doesn't mean that you know, there will be repression. There will always be diversity in the church. There will always be different beliefs. But there are some beliefs that are non-negotiable. There are certain truths that need to be adopted. And if not, there are wonderful churches that you can find where, you know, you might find then something that is more according to your need. I don't blame anybody after a while of insisting on, and then saying, you know what, I, I can't be here. 
you know, but churches need to adopt a, an editorial attitude, if you will, and they need to stay by it. Because I th- I, God has spoken to me more clearly than ever in this time of such di- of division that we cannot live schizophrenically. Churches that have all kinds of beliefs just r- romping around and that are mutually exclusive, ultimately, and that weaken the church. Because then the church is not like this body that, uh, he's, uh, that he speaks about, verse 16. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. See, remember Paul's understanding. Unity has structures that, that bring it together. If my, le- my right leg is going in one direction and my left leg is going another direction, what is there? This craziness, ineffectiveness. If a church is d- divided within itself by different doctrines and different beliefs, what good is it? A house divided within itself will not stand. And what we have today in the name of diversity is a lot of is houses that are divided, where people, energies are being displayed in all directions and we're not hitting the target. Unfortunately, that is the case, and God has convicted me of that. And I say that with wonderful, I believe, great love. I hope you don't discern any kind of uh, self-righteousness in me or uh, cruelty or harshness of spirit. It is just uh, I am tethered to truth, and I say it. Uh, Now, the content of truth does offend many times. But I hope that my tone is one that says, I love you, and I, I love you so much that I'm willing to make myself unpopular before you and to wake, awaken you to really what, it, what it's all about, especially in the times. Remember, we spoke about discernment of the times that we are living in. We cannot be, you know, uh, just pussyfooting around. We got to be really clear on certain things. Anyway, you know, um, it, it, it need, there needs to be clarity. There needs to be clarity. And so, in verse 25, uh, Paul's logical thinking, he's very specific. He's, he's, going for, he's going from specificity to specificity to specificity, concentric circles of specificity. Now he gets to the, 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 the quotidian, the daily, the, the, the small principles of life. And so, notice now this conduct element here. The new man, it sounds great, new self, new mind, renewal, great terms. But what does that mean? And he does us the favor of telling us very specifically. Now, what you have here, I've discerned at least eight ways of living, specific elements of conduct, because it's about conduct, it's about living, remember, that he delineates here. So he says, I don't want to leave you just with, you know, these principles. Uh, I want to get into the very specific it says, therefore, you see that therefore, as a consequence of all of this other stuff that I've said, therefore, each of you, not just the pastors, not just the leaders, each of us, you, 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 and I, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbors. Let me just... Uh, I'll give you the principles then, and I'll hopefully be able to uh, I'll control myself and not get into preliminarily uh, into a lot of commentary. So, you know, he's asking us, in those, in, you have eight, eight callings to specific uh, living. Paul, uh, put off falsehood and speak truthfully. So, number one, speak truthfully. Be truthful in your style of living. Uh, the second one is about anger and how we should manage anger. The third one is... 
Don't give the devil a foothold, an excuse, a point of uh, support. Don't give the devil excuses to attack you. Number four, honesty and hard work. But it's interesting that he, he nuances that by saying, so that when you make money because of your hard work, you share with others. Then. So it's a call to generosity as well there. So honest, hardworking life. No thieving, no, no stealing, no cheating, no manipulating people to make money. You got to do it honestly. And then when God blesses you, because he will, as you practice this godly lifestyle of working, you will have money and then you can share it with others. Don't just hoard it. Okay, don't dedicate now to worshiping your ATM machine and, and uh, going and visiting it every day. Oh, my precious. No, you got to now give. You got to give it away. You have to give it to the kingdom. You have to be generous because as you do that, you will be a river through which the, the current of God's blessing comes and it will increase. We are rivers. We're not lakes just containing money and hoarding. Long story there. Live an honest, hardworking life and be generous with your possessions. Number five, let your words and your conversation be healthy and constructive. Number six, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Very mysterious. Number seven, live a gentle, peaceful lifestyle. A gentle, peaceful lifestyle. And number eight, a life of kindness and compassion. These are the eight things that he goes into here. Again, these are the specific things. So number one. Let each one speak truthfully. Here, number verse 25. You must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Let me just read what I've put here. Renounce. The, the, the Apostle Paul is calling us to renounce any devious way of dealing with fellow believers or anyone. It's your neighbor. Okay? Refuse lying, hypocrisy, manipulation, gossip, dissimulation, and adopt sincerity, transparency, protecting the reputation of others, and being harmless to others. Uh, you know, that's, that's, you, there's, a, there's a rejecting and a replacing in all of his uh, uh, prescriptions. Okay, so this idea of speaking truth means renounce double-mindedness or any kind of speaking or acting that is manipulative. Your yes should be yes. Your no should be no. You, don't have to, you, don't, you shouldn't need to swear in order to, for people to believe you. They should simply look at you and say, I know this guy speaks the truth. And I just assume that he or she is saying the truth. We have to dedicate ourselves to speaking truthfully. Wow, that's a very, sometimes speaking truthfully will gain us broken relationships. Because, but we should always do it in a way that is uh, unimpeachable. In a way that... Uh, even though it sounds uh, difficult and confrontative, it's, it's said in the right spirit. Now, the, I say here, the reference to neighbor, uh, for, uh, for, to your neighbor, speak truthfully to your neighbor, means that this type of conduct should be applied to everyone and not just to the, me the members of your spiritual family. Your dealings with everyone should be characterized by this truthfulness. Christians should be known for their transparency and sincerity, for being above board in all their dealings with others. That's a tough prescription. That's what we need to aim for. Our truthfulness, sincerity should characterize our life. Number two, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Now, here's an interesting thing. In your anger presupposes that there will be anger. The, the Bible doesn't have um, anything inherently 
against anger. But what it does say is that our anger should be channeled properly. Our anger should be managed properly. Our anger uh, should reflect the values of the kingdom. Anger is unavoidable in this world. But we should make sure that when we are angry, we submit our anger to the scrutiny of the Spirit and to the Word of God so that we channel our anger properly. Okay? God says, there is an acceptance of the fact that anger is an inevitable emotion and has a certain legitimacy. But it should not take over, linger longer than necessary, or control our actions. That's, you know, the way we're supposed to handle our anger. All right? Some of us are angry because we're temperamentally prone to anger. Some of us can offend through anger. When you, when you feel that, you know, that uh, heat beginning to rise in you, immediately go on alert. If you're having a fight with your wife, don't just say the first thing that comes out of your mouth. Say, wait a minute, what I say may influence the next few days of our life together. How she cooks, <laughs> you know, how she relates to me in all kinds of ways. So I better, I better think about this. Because I may have the joy of, you know, just on, on burdening myself in one second, but it will last for days and weeks. So we got to think about that, you know, in our friendships, in our relationship with our colleagues, in our relationship with our loved ones. We have to, uh, yeah, I, and this talks about self-control, about, you know, meditation and so on and so forth. It's a long thing. A man or a woman who controls their anger is a moral giant. They're ready to go to heaven, shoes and all. It's a very difficult thing, I'm telling you. But we have to learn to uh, channel our anger through the principles of the kingdom. So be angry and do not sin. There's a way to be angry uh, that is kingdom-oriented, and there's a way that is demonic. And I think this is why in the apostle's mind, he goes into the third element. And, and do not give the devil a foothold. You see, the and. And do not give the devil a foothold. Why? Anger can lead to actions that allow Satan to work in us. Anger can lead to words that destroy friendships and even marriages. And that is the work of the devil. Unchecked, anger can lead to murder and all sorts of violent actions. I've known people, my brothers and sisters, who in a moment of anger killed a wife, for example. And uh, later on, they were sent into despair. How could I have done that? It was also fueled by alcohol, by the way, in the case that I'm thinking of, a very loved member of my family many, many years ago. And, um, you know, some anger is, it can give the devil, the devil can take your anger. What does the Bible say? That the devil, in James, I think it is, you know, um, the devil takes the resident evil that is in us and uh, just uh, manipulates it to lead us into sinfulness. It's not that he's putting anything new. It's in us. And the devil will use all those emotions that are carnal in us, and he will simply manipulate them. He will expand them. This is why the Christian life has to be a, a, a process of continually killing those footholds, topos, where topology comes from. It is those places inside of us that, that communicate with the devil. They're, they have the same essence as the demonic, and therefore the devil can have communion with it. What the devil can't have communion with is the, the, the principles of the kingdom and the essence of Christ. Jesus said, I'm leaving because the devil is coming and he has, I have nothing to do with him. See, the devil cannot manipulate uh, noble 
impulses because it's like he'll put his hand through them, to them, and he'll just go right through them. He can't. What he can manipulate, though, is those demonic things that have affinity with him, the anger, the sensuality, all of those different things. But when your eye is clean, then you, all of you, you all are, you're all clean. When your words are clean, then the enemy cannot do that. So this is why, again, this whole idea of giving the devil a foothold, a handle, is major. And anger is one of those things that gives Satan. Uh, all of this is the work of Satan, who will use his, uh, the, the believer's anger as a foothold, a springboard to act within and through us. We should always be aware that we have an adversary, an accuser, who takes advantage of every action and every word to accuse us and to attack us. That is to giving the devil a foothold. Satan is a legalist. He uses our sins to accuse us, to gain entry into our lives, and to bring suffering and grief to us and those around us. We should avoid making his work easier for him. Many believers suffer from the fact that they don't understand the dynamics of spiritual warfare. They don't understand the, the, the mystery of evil that is in human beings and in the world. We should be asking, I'm asking the Lord to give me more understanding of the mystery of evil in our time. Because it seems that evil now has been freed to do much more than it has ever done before. The church needs understanding of spiritual warfare. And spiritual warfare is an everyday thing. And this is why we fall many times. We don't understand that Satan is like a lion roaring, prowling around, waiting whom to devour, the Bible says. We need to be vigilant. Okay? So don't give the devil a handle in your life. And then he speaks about do not steal... But rather work. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Can you imagine a first century pastor or whoever in a small house church with a couple of guys who have been thieves and now have come into the kingdom saying, guys, no more stealing. No more going into houses and breaking into them. No more going to the market and putting apples or fruits into your pocket. Confrontative. Very specific. Look how specific holiness needs to be. Do not steal anymore. It says, do not steal, but rather work. And again, as I said, be generous with the possessions that you gain from your labor. There may have been people in the Ephesian congregation who engaged in robbing others before they knew Christ. They are no longer to do that, but rather do the opposite. They should work hard and be generous with others when God prospers them. Why, generosity is the opposite of stealing. Stealing is based on, I'm going to take what is not mine because I'm hoarding and I'm selfish here it says, no, replace that with generosity. Give. If, you, if God gives you the grace to make money, don't worship money. Share it with others, and God will give you more. That's, you know, that's an amazing understanding. So do not steal, but rather work hard. Then there's the, the other principle in uh, verse 5, excuse me, verse 29, the fifth principle. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is Helpful for, binding up, for building up others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not engage in unwholesome talk. Here's your words and your conversation, our words and conversation, reflect what is inside our heart and our mind. Okay, words are vessels. Words are powerful. Words have the power of life and of death in them. When you are clean and generous inside, this will be reflected by the way you talk. Words have consequences. They have extraordinary weight and importance. We should not waste time with silly conversation lacking in nutrients. We should measure our words. We should think more than we speak. 
We consume energy with our words. Therefore, we should be economical in our use of them. Do you know how you can distinguish a wise man or woman? By their silences. Over life, one understands that, uh, you know, silence is very powerful, more powerful maybe than words. And so we should let our words should be few, the Bible says. And our premeditation should be ample. We should think more than we talk. We should meditate more than we speak. Our words should have weight. And the, the more economical you are with the use of your words, the more power they would have, they will have. You know, silence is an amazing resource for life. And words are vessels and they're weapons as well. And they uh, accumulate energy or they dispel energy. So our words, our life, our conversation, what is your conversation like? What do you spend time talking about? And what do people think of the things that you talk about at the water cooler in the office? Maybe not now, but before or after this whole thing. You know, how, what are your words like? Fill your mind with good words, with good conversation, with good talking. Um, because, uh, you know, that will determine the power, the robustness of your life. Then the other one, and I'm, I'm, forgive me, I just want to finish this and get it over with, okay? Um, the, the, the other concept is uh, number six. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of, of, redemp of uh, redemption. This is a very powerful, again, mysterious principle, grieving the Spirit of God. Maybe you haven't heard of that principle if you're new to the kingdom. Is it possible to grieve the Spirit of God? Notice one thing here. Number one is that the Spirit is a person. You don't grieve an object. You don't grieve a principle. The Spirit is, is, a, is a sentient being. And you can grieve Him. You can, you can uh, bring joy to Him. You can alienate Him. You can discourage Him from having communion with you. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? By our words, by our actions, by our thoughts, by our practices. And so he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be affected by your actions. The Holy Spirit can be affected by your thinking. The Holy Spirit can be affected by the principles that you adopt. Many people think that, oh, I believe this, and you know, it affects the Spirit. There are many people who are engaging in false doctrine in the church, sincere, well-intentioned, and the very adoption of these ungodly principles, it uh, alienates the spirit and prevents the fullness of his power from manifesting itself in them. This is why churches sometimes cease to grow and become dead, because their beliefs and their practices grieve the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't move within them. The Holy Spirit is alienated. I mean, he wants to be there. He wants to move on their behalf, but he can't because it doesn't smell good. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So we should be careful to not say, feel, or do anything that would inhibit the Spirit's work in our lives. The Holy Spirit is a source of power and blessing in our lives. His presence inside of us is a huge asset. We should be careful not to engage in any kind of speaking or behaving that would distance Him from us. Easier said than done. There is such a thing as grieving the Holy Spirit. It doesn't necessarily mean offending Him or making Him angry, but rather, rather muting and reducing His capacity to move within us. He lives within us, and our actions and our words can affect Him negatively. We should be sensitive to this dynamic and guide our actions and words accordingly. Many of us are not aware that the Holy Spirit is living within me. 
He is a hostage to my body, if you will. And he's like a Siamese twin. What I do, he's got to come along with it. You know that this is very, uh, I, I don't have time, but look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 sometime. And uh, verses 12 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, where Paul engages in something that's very mysterious. He says, do not consort with the prostitute, for example, any kind of impurity in our lives. Because he says, when you are consorting with the prostitute, you are forcing the Spirit of God that is within you to participate in that. If, the, if Paul hadn't said that, I would have said, this guy's crazy. But it's the Word of God. And it's a, it's a logical thing. If the Spirit is within you, resident in you, and you engage in these things, you are making the spirit part of this element. You know, the, the, the spirit world can be affected by the physical world. Nations grieve the Holy Spirit. Societies grieve the Holy Spirit many times. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm, I'm done. I'm getting out of here. As he, as he, as he left the temple once. And uh, boy, I mean, if we really could think about this, not for us to become obsessive, guys. But think about the fact that your actions, your words, your thought life, your practices, they affect the spirit that is resident in you. And if you want him to be happy, your home, for example. I always say, to Father, make my home a temple where you can dwell comfortably. So what, what am I listening to? What words are resounding in my living room? What conversation am I having? Uh, because the Holy Spirit, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Read 1 Corinthians 6. We are the temple. And therefore, that temple should be clean, pure, and consistent with the principles of the kingdom. So, don't grieve him. Two more, I think. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. This verse constitutes a list of the works of the flesh that you find in Galatians chapter 5. It is the very opposite of a life led by the Spirit. This slandering, brawling, and so on and so forth is a portrait of a carnal sensibility, the very opposite of the gentleness, kindness, and generosity that should characterize a godly Christ-like Christ -like life. What Paul is portraying here is the, the, the carnal life, the acts of the flesh. We should make sure we search out and eliminate every laven, every trace of laven of this animal-like sensibility from our life. You know, wherever there is that violent nature of the, of the demonic and of the animal, we should go with a magnifying glass, find it like the Jews when they were searching for laven in their house to purify it, and we should just extricate it, just erase it, erase it completely. We should be master detectives finding out where these traces of carnality are in us. Not obsessively, with great joy and peace in the spirit because God accepts us, even in the process of dealing with these sins in us. But we should do it, and nevertheless, insistently, with confidence and joy because we're becoming more Christ-like. Wherever there's a trace of that violent nature of the demonic in you, in your life, hey, extirpate it. Like a surgeon, take it out. Um, and then he always, you know, Paul always ends up in, in good, uh, uh, in a good note, uh, because the, 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 the substitute of all of this cutting down and replacing, it should be a, a, a adopting something positive. It says, be kind and compassionate to one another. 
forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. That is the sort of the sum of it all, you know. Everything that has been said before, all the carnal manifestations that Paul mentions that should be replaced by lovely ones, summarized here. Be kind and compassionate. This final quality mentioned by the apostle is the very opposite of the ones just mentioned, especially the brawling and so on and so forth, the carnal nature. It is the way of love that he describes, by the way, if you follow verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, you will see it develop. I mean, this, there are no chapters in the Bible, of course. It was just one stream of thought. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This final quality is the very opposite of what he has just described. Every quality that has been mentioned until now is summarized by this attitude of love that should characterize the life of every believer. So, from the lofty considerations of the first verses in Ephesians chapter 4, we see that the ultimate result has to be a life characterized by purity, holiness, and love. Anything less than that is a contradiction of God's intention for us in our lifestyle. We should note that in all these qualities, there's an element of rejecting and an element of embracing and adopting. This is exactly the experience of all believers who struggle to free themselves from their old nature and are called to embrace the divine nature of the Father. People of God, may the unity that characterizes us as a church be a unity based on truth, on, on a will to truth. May we not ever shortchange ourselves by adopting a quick solution to the struggles of our life and, and of, the, of the church as a whole. When we go through the hard work of battling our own impulses, confessing our sins, acknowledging our brokenness, and then appealing to this gracious God. None of what I have said is meant to instill in you any kind of guilt that will weaken you in your resolve to be a better Christian. Because this God accepts you. Despite all that gunk that we all have, He loves you. He loves me. He accepts us all. That's why we should never refuse to announce the Word of God. Why? He knows that we are sinful. This Word cleanses us. It heals us. We should love it and we should accept it and welcome it. So don't be, don't be grieved in the sense of uh, feeling somehow that God is condemning you. Don't leave this place condemned. Leave this place full of hope and of gratitude for this God who loves you. He knows uh, every crevice of your being, and yet he, he has a desperate love for you. So aspire to be like him. Leave this place today with a, a more intense desire to be like Christ. Can you do that? You want to do that this morning? Stand for a second. Come on. Stand and take a second there in your heart. Find that central place of your being and say, Father, install these truths in my being. Screw them into place. Wire them to my mind, my sensibility, my heart. <clears throat> I'm the first one, Father. May my friends, companions in the journey leave today more determined than ever to be like Christ. Thank you for this journey, Father. It is an amazing journey 
of a knight in shining armor fighting against these giants that would lead us into death and here you are calling us to something beautiful we embrace the journey I embrace the journey say that I embrace the journey yes continue the good fight this morning let the word of God guide you father guide us take over take control we are not able to do it by ourselves we despair at our condition but you're a loving God and we welcome your work in our lives bless this congregation bless those who are watching from afar and make this place a place that you will inhabit joyfully gladly forgive us that we're not better but we are trying and we will continue trying and we welcome your truth and your call lead us from here in peace and lead us with great hope and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.